This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. We're here tonight to talk about the biopolitics of the medical industrial complex in pandemic times and why it's truly imperative um, to transform the medical industrial complex in these times and to really be able to understand it and position it as a site of major systemic change and remaking and to understand it and identify it as a site of mass mobilization and organizing. Um, And before... I proceed any further, I just want to let people know that a lot of the content that we'll be exploring this evening is intense and it's painful. And for many of us who are listening or watching, it may impact us or our communities, our families, our ancestors really personally. So, you know, to really honor the intensity of it and what um, what people have survived or not survived, I just want to evoke that. I think one of the ways that we can best disrupt and position ourselves to transform the medical industrial complex is to acknowledge the pain so we don't participate in the logic of denial um, or invisibilization or the normalization of suffering or systemic oppression. And I will unpack some of those things as we talk further this evening. So the medical industrial complex puts profit and social control above saving lives and true health and healing. And many may claim, well, you know, health and healing, it's its hard to define, Mordecai. And I'm actually going to make a rather simple counter argument, you know, for you to consider. And that's that, you know, with health and healing, you know it when you see it, or more importantly, you know it when you experience it. In some ways, because the medical industrial complex so strongly produces and amplifies ableism, it's really occupied even our collective imagination of what real health and healing is. And ableism, like so many other types of systemic oppression, it can be internalized and then in in turn it becomes normalized and then that results in its invisibilization. You know, it's very hard to tell that it's there. So if we can realign to these truths of what what health and healing is and reclaim our right to know, you know, be experts in our own skin amid the so-called laboratories of our lived lives and know that we have the power and right to know and define what health and healing is for ourselves, our communities, our planet, you know, this is really among the most crucial liberatory work we can be engaging in now. You know, and I see it as a labor of love, profoundly generative, inherently healing, and work that will build our collective autonomy and capacity to co-create viable and sustainable alternatives to the medical industrial complex. So I'm really um, grateful and humbled to be here with all of you tonight so we can begin to um, act as catalysts in our own lives and community to start or continue this work, because certainly many of you are already engaged in this in so many ways. 
And in so many ways, our survival is this work and uplifts these aims in, in such profound ways. And that's, it's crucial to not forget that. Um, so in these specific pandemic times, how do these pandemic times urgently demand this work of us? Um, so the pandemic has been exploited in highly calculated and strategic ways to further mobilize and cement the power of the alt-right in this country, in the U.S., otherwise referred to as Turtle Island by indigenous people. Um, and historically and currently, medical institutions and practices have been deployed to enforce and carry out far-right fascist and genocidal agendas. And in this talk, I will reveal how the medical industrial complex was actually designed for this and co-evolved with this um, and has been intended to justify and advance the aims of white supremacy, ableism, patriarchy, Christian supremacy, and capitalist expansion. And they really all work together to ensure their success and a kind of chokehold over power and resources. Um, so I want to take you through um, some information to really give you, begin to give you all a sense of how this at, out pictures and manifests. Um, and this is part of what the biopolitics of the MIC really are. So I'm going to begin by actually talking through um, some cancer prevalence statistics and then um, look at how the MIC, the medical industrial complex, organizes treatment um, around cancer and other disease, especially with the engagement of big pharma and other multinational corporations connected to, um, to big pharma corporations. So we'll be able to see patterns emerging of how one of the ways in which the medical industrial complex functions to engage in this social control is that it's actually playing a significant causative role in the diseases and illnesses that is actually making money, huge amounts of money in treating. So this is one of the first dynamics that we'll be looking at. And you'll see that that ties into many of the other themes that I've already evoked. Um, so according to the National Cancer Institute's 2020 statistics, 40% of the people, 40 of people in the US will get cancer in our lifetimes. The MIC profits hugely from this. The National Institute of Health estimates that direct cancer treatment alone in 2020 cost $160 million. Evaluate Pharma, which is a financial analyst firm, um, estimated that total quote unquote oncology sales in 2008 um, was nearly $125 billion. And that's out of a total prescription market of $864 billion. Another big pharma analyst, Dioliti, projects that global sales of pharmaceuticals will exceed 900 billion this year. So that's nearly a trillion dollars. So between 2010 and 2020, the cost of cancer care in the US has increased by 27%. And Evaluate Pharma also projects that oncology will have close to a 20% market share of pharma sales by 2024, exceeding 240 billion. So 
there's a way in which multinational big pharma corporations are really tied to chemical polluters and how their very models are designed to create these types of vertical markets, you know, those that I just mentioned, to ensure that the profit um, that they that they glean from producing pharmaceuticals um, to treat diseases um, is very, very high, and that simultaneously their business models are organized so that they're actually manufacturing products that are ev evidence to cause cancer and the other types of illnesses that they are um, creating huge revenue streams for treating. So Bayer Monsanto is actually a perfect example of this. Um, as many of you may be familiar, Monsanto makes glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, um, and one of the most prevalent broad-spectrum herbicides on the planet. In 2015, it was designated a probable carcinogen by the WHO, the World Health Organization. In 2016, it was found above recommended limits in 93% of Americans in an, in an environmental working group study. In 2017, a longitudinal study that began in 93 and published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that glyphosate levels in participants had doubled since 1996 and are well over the recommended limits, both, um, both here in the US and in Europe. And then finally in 2019, February of that year, a study by the University of Washington, which was actually the most extensive review of epidemiological literature to date, found that glyphosate increases cancer risk by 40%, especially of non-Hopkins lymphoma. So guess what company makes one of the few FDA-approved drugs to treat non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Bayer Monsanto. Uh, in fact, this particular drug was fast-tracked by the FDA to treat late-stage of these types of cancer that were resistant to other therapies in 2019, just one year after the 66 billion merger between Bayer Monsanto in June 2018. And just another example of how these types of toxins circulate in our environments and our body and generate huge amounts of profit for the medical industrial complex in multiple levels. Enlist Duo um, was one of the first pesticides to be fast-tracked for approval under Trump's EPA. And Enlist in Duo is actually glyphosate plus one of the chemicals that was used in Agent Orange. So, you know, this is Trump's America, but it's also the biopolitics of the medical industrial complex as they have been. So one of the defining characteristics of the medical industrial complex that's very concealed from our view is that it's not just profit driven, but at every level, it incentivizes making people sick so it can profit from curing or treating us. I'm gonna take a pause. Um, for a moment to just let that sink in. Um, this isn't hyperbole or conspiracy theory. It's readily demonstrable fact. Um, there's other things about Bayer Monsanto that illustrates and outpictures some other profound and chilling aspects of the medical industrial complex, um, both of its history and how it functions in present time. So Bayer, you know, well-known for aspirin, 
also has historic ties to a big chemical conglomerate called IG Farben, of which it was a a member company. Um, So IG Farben was responsible for creating Zyklon B, which is the chemical used to murder 3 million Jewish people, disabled people, Roma people, LBGT people, and communists in the gas chambers of Auschwitz and other concentration camps. In 43 to 44, 6,000 people were murdered daily in Auschwitz. And the interned enslaved labor um, of Jewish, disabled, Roma, LBGT people, communists, um, were used to actually build IG Farben's um, uh, factory that was producing Zyklon B. Um, And as many of you may know from knowing this history, even in some limited way, disabled people were among the first to be murdered. Um, Bayer, BASF, another huge chemical corporation that still exists, and Hoysta made the chlorine gas that's notorious as being known as the gas cloud that was used in World War I trench warfare prior to joining with other big chem companies in 25 to form IG Farben. So IG Farben actually has deep ties to the founding um, institutional infrastructure as the MIC as we know it as well. J.D. Rockefeller was actually a board member of IG Farben, and he is a well-known monopolist who is also a member of the Carnegie Foundation, which was responsible for commissioning the Flexner Report in 1910. And that report essentially resulted in the remaking of medical school education and in many ways led the, um, laid the groundwork for the institutional infrastructure of the MIC. So Rockefeller has a lot of ties and entanglements with this history that I think demonstrate a lot of what's crucial to understand about the MIC so we can really disrupt and transform it. Rockefeller also founded the Institute for Medical Research, which developed pharmaceuticals. So you can see that, you know, at the ground up, wanting to make sure that the pharmaceutical industry played a really big role in um, healthcare institutions was very, very important. Um, He also funded the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, which produced the United States' first eugenicist research and also produced the the world's um, first racial hygiene laws. Um, Standard Oil, which is Rockefeller's company, supplied IG Farben with tetraethyl lead, um, an essential ingredient of the gasoline used for Nazi fighter planes. Um, After the Rockefellers, the next largest stockholder in Standard Oil was IG Farben, and this investment was actually part of a pattern of reciprocal investments between the US and Germany during the Nazi years. In 28, Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm's Institute for Eugenics, Anthropology, and Human Heredity was created. It was run by Ernst Runden, Hitler's foremost racial hygienist, and the Institute's main financing came from Rockefeller. So this really just illustrates the extent to which this eugenicist project an ecocidal project, um, a profit-driven project is all really part of the founding institutions of the the medical industrial complex. Um, There's also a chilling statistic that the UN Chemical Outlooks um, report published in 2019, and that's that in 2017, 
the global chemistry, uh, the global chemical industry was worth more than $5 trillion. And by 2030, this is predicted to double. So I think for me, this highlights the urgency of really understanding, exposing, and transforming the medical, the medical industrial complex because of its complicity um, with so much of the decline of health, so much of the decline of um, individual and collective community power, um, and the, the degradation of our ecosystems. I don't, it's hard to imagine a livable world if the amount of chemical toxins circulating in our environments double in just 10 years. So, you know, at this point, you may ask, you know, Mordecai, just please just give us a simple, succinct definition of the medical industrial complex, you know, and I think on some levels, rather than a succinct definition, although I will give you that in a moment, one of the best ways to define the MIC is to really um, reveal all of its interlocking parts. You know, look at how it behaves, its rationales, its practices, the embedded, normalized, invisibilized systems of oppression, the legacies of the enslavement of black lives and bodies, and the attempted genocide of the indigenous people of, of Turtle Island, you know, upon which it's built, and, you know, its impacts upon every aspect of our lives you know, well beyond the doctor's office or our healthcare plans, or even the all too lethal battles we must wage, or we've had to wage with health insurers for access to basic care, even before the pandemic. You know, the MIC is a set of entangled institutions, scientific disciplines, mindsets, and practices that interact with and bear upon all domains of society to control and manage the delivery of healthcare and acts as the most authoritative arbiter on what constitutes health and illness, what constitutes normal and deviation, what constitutes legitimate diseases and treatment, and really who is worthy of care and life itself. You know, so just circling back to the pandemic in these times, you know, there's other chilling facts that define this moment that I think we're all too aware of. So over 200,000 people have perished from COVID-19 in the U.S. On Friday, the 25th, 55 new people were diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, that is a huge amount. That's the greatest number for, I think, the last three months. Um, and I just want to say, notice I didn't say 55,000 new cases that type of depersonalizing language is common in public health talk, but it really erases from our awareness that each of these quote unquote cases are actual people. You know, each one beloved, precious, immeasurably valuable and irreplaceable. So that's one of the ways that we can disrupt the way the system functions is to just really honor the loss. I think one of the things that was most despicable and painful of the really brief amount of the debate that I listened to um, yesterday, and truly it was only about three minutes because that's about all I could take and also I had to teach, um, it was the way in which um, Trump was just very, very casually engaging and not just of gaslighting, but profound dismissal of the huge pain and loss 
that people in this country and globally have been facing just regarding the pandemic alone. That's not even speaking to the the intensification of racialized violence, police violence, or the many other things that we will touch upon um, in, a, in a few moments. Um, so, you know, just the normalization of, you know, he was just like, oh, well, you know, not that many, not that many people have really died and it's really just older people and people with diabetes or heart conditions and, you know, not that many children or young people. So this casual way you know, to just speak of, oh, those disposable people, you know, those people that are already inherently flawed, like that expression of intersectional ableism, because of course, you know, there's such a high proportion of um, black people in the U.S. and Latinx people in the U.S. and disabled people of all races um, that have been most impacted by COVID. So that casual dismissal is, this, is really shows um, some of the dynamics of these times as well. Um, so as you also probably know, we have over seven, have over 7 million people have or have had COVID in the US and we're leading the world in cases and deaths. And we're followed most closely by Brazil and Russia, which I think should give us all pause. There's certainly a pattern that emerges. Um, and that is a pattern that draws our attention to the political context in um, in those countries and the edging towards, or arguably, you know, in some places like Russia, the the dictatorship or the fascist um, overtaking that's happening in those places. And you know, if you contrast the response to COVID to other places in the world, you can really see the extent to which the pandemic here has been exploited to push a eugenicist agenda and the way in which the medical industrial complex enforces and carries this out. And see now it's really, it's playing a role in edging us closer to a full racist dictatorship. I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm just trying to draw our attention to the real risks that we're facing. Um, and a couple of great examples are um, Morocco and Sudan. Um, so um, Morocco, um, very soon after the pandemic began, eventually, uh, essentially invoked what is the equivalent of the Defense Production Act. And, you know, there was no fanfare or discussion or controversy. Factories were just redeployed immediately to mass produce um, personal protective equipment or PPE. So guess what happened? There was only slightly over 2,000 deaths there to date. Um, and Sudan made testing readily accessible you know, as early as mid-March, fast testing, um, very easy for people in the country to be able to access the death toll there, only 836. So the contrast is vast, you know, and even prior to the pandemic, our communities have been being attacked and divided on several fronts. You know, and this, as noted scholar of, of fascism, Jason Stanley has talked about recently, Fascism uses a lot of tactics and plays the long game, you know. So Hitler's rise to power took about five to six years, um, and so did the, the full-fledged onslaught of the genocide in Rwanda. But both contexts deployed similar, uh, similar rhetoric to what's being used by Trump and this administration, which I think we could actually, actually accurately call a regime. So, you know, what are some of the ways that our communities are being are being attacked and have been. Um, one, I think 
that is crucial to mention because it is in fact a public health crisis is the lethal targeting of black and brown people, the majority of whom are also disabled by, by the police. You know, so when police officers shoot a young black father seven times in the back in front of his children, as they did with Jacob Blake, or they shoot into an apartment 34 times and a young woman, Breonna Taylor, is murdered. Um, you know, this exemplifies police forces behaving as domestic terrorists and, you know, engaging in acts of violence that function as collective punishment and are profoundly and collectively traumatizing. Um, you know, and it's not just me that's saying this is a public health crisis. Clearly, Black Lives Matter and our communities, you know, are demanding that this is recognized as the horrific crisis that it is. But I think something that's pivotal and hopeful, and I'll take a little bit of a pause now to kind of evoke the potential of this moment, is that um, something has happened in the medical industrial complex since its um, since its monopolist roots or even its roots prior to that in um, transatlantic slavery and attempted genocide of indigenous people that um, the MIC and healthcare workers have been democratizing over the last 20 to 30 years. So there's more and more black indigenous and people of color who are healthcare workers at all levels, including doctors um, and research scientists, more women, more queer, trans and non-binary people, more disabled folks. So now this is a moment when we actually, we need them most as our accomplices. Um, and they're there. They're in the belly of the beast able to begin to um, question um, what's happening from the inside and begin to amplify the demands of communities most impacted. And a great example of this is an organization I have the gift to work with as well called the Do No Harm Coalition that is based here in the Bay Area, which is, I'm tuning in from Oakland, um, otherwise known as Haloni Territory or Hoi Chin. Um, so that's where Do No Harm is based as well. And one of the, they do a lot of great work. Please look them up um, if you're interested in learning more. And if you are a healthcare, a radical healthcare worker who's located in the Bay Area, please join their work. Um, there's actually chapters that are starting up around the country. So yeah, if that's you, um, you know, please do research them. But one of the projects that they've done in the past was called the Justice Project, and it's a study of the impact of collective trauma on black communities due to police terrorism. That's like just an example of some of the opportunity and the power and potential of this moment. But, you know, let's segue back to what we're up against, but, you know, don't lose that hope. <laughs> you know, remember how it feels in your body because I really want everyone who's listening or watching to be able to carry that forward from this talk, to be able to, so you can feel supported to action um, because we all have a role in this great work if we choose it. Um, so, you know, coming back to this moment, what we're seeing characterizing this, these times and what we're seeing as an intensification of these eugenicist attempts being deployed by the MIC is a normalization of eugenics that's such a huge part of ableism via the, um, the justification of medical rationing. So one such example of this that's very painful is the recent death of Michael Hickson, who was a 46-year-old disabled man um, living in South Austin, Texas. 
and he had a very severe heart attack, and as a consequence, he had cognitive impairment, and he was a quadriplegic. But, um, you know, so he had some health complications from that, understandably, but he was living a good life, incredibly loved and cherished by his wife and four children. Um, but he came down with COVID, so he was admitted to the hospital, and his wife, Melissa Hickson, almost immediately got into a struggle with the doctors providing his care because they essentially claim that, um, you know, quote unquote, his quality of life, Michael's quality of life, he doesn't really have much of one. And that direct quote was captured on tape by Melissa Hickson because she became very mistrustful of the doctors pretty immediately and actually recorded a conversation that's now been widely publicized in, in the media. But essentially, what happened was Melissa agreed with the doctors that um, she and Michael didn't want for him to be intubated, but she did request that he receive other life-saving treatment, such as food, water, oxygen therapy, and medicine. And essentially the doctors and the state of Texas intervened and refused this, essentially killing Michael Hickson by letting him die. So Texas decided that they shouldn't have to use resources to try to save someone with Michael's disabilities. Um, and it's just, it's a profound loss. Oftentimes when I talk about Mr. Hickson, I just actually start crying. And this is a, an example of the way that the state and the medical industrial complex carry, you know, are able to carry out um, this, this eugenicist project that, and they're able to, um, they're able to enforce this rendering of someone's life uh, as being unworthy of living. You know, this is an extreme example of um, racialized medical ableism, you know, and being heightened, really exposed, and yet justified in these pandemic times. So the right and the ability of the medical industrial complex to manage and administer life, you know, to wield the ultimate authority of who lives and who dies and our quality of life is really what Michel Foucault meant when he initially proposed the term biopolitics, you know, that I've been evoking, um, you know, throughout the entire conversation. And all of these complex dynamics we've been discussing are the outpicturing, the manifestations and the impacts of biopolitics. So, you know, where, where do we really go from here? And what are other ways that this is impacting us in this moment? Um, you know, the PPE and ventilator scarcity have been really part of the way in which um, this has been normalized. Um, and I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about how this quote-unquote scarcity um, has come to be. So um, as of last week, over 1,150 healthcare workers have died of COVID-19 due to inadequate PPE, personal protective equipment. And rationing and shortages are still commonplace in hospitals all over the country. And, you know, there's been a lot of fuzzy facts and obfuscation of facts and alt facts around how this has happened. Because the reality is, is that we in the United States, we could have had a response that looked like Morocco's or Sudan's or New Zealand's or Thailand's or, I'm sorry, or Taiwan's. You know, there's many ways that we could have responded 
Um, but unfortunately, the MIC has already been designed for scarcity to leverage that as a form of social control and assurance of highest profits. Um, and then, uh, so what you see when you look deeply at how this quote unquote scarcity has come to be is that there's hospital administrators at every level across the country, you know, who have been firing nurses and other healthcare workers for bringing in their own PPE or for wearing N95s um, for procedures for which it wasn't um, deemed medically necessary or refusing to procure masks due to too high of a cost per unit or um, refusing to take mask donations. I have um, a, a colleague that I work with in the Health Justice Commons who's one of our rad docs, who is um, one of the members of the radical telehealth collective that we're starting that we've begun as a response to the pandemic. And he's, um, he's situated in Tacoma, Washington, and he has told, shared with me and others that the hospital that he works in received hundreds of mass donations that are literally just put away in a locked room that healthcare workers are not allowed to access. But more importantly, the Trump regime has made very clear decisions which have led to um, thousands of unnecessary and preventable deaths and needless preventable sufferings. And one of the most well-documented examples of this um, was picked up um, by news outlets as diverse as Vanity Fair and Business Week, you know, and that's uh, a meeting that took that took place on March 20th of this year, so very early on in the pandemic. And this meeting brought together public health experts, Silicon Valley funders, and CEOs from many corporations, including Mary Barra, uh, who's the CEO of GM. All these people came together. Um, and they were basically like, we're ready to throw down. We are ready for the Defense Production Act, like, you know, deploy our factories to make PPE, to make ventilators. We can, you know, we can save communities. We can save lives. The representative for the Trump regime at this meeting was Jared Kushner, who is Trump's son-in-law. And he said, no, you all don't understand business. You don't understand how capitalism works. And we're not going to do this. Um, all of the different localities and states are going to fend for themselves, especially because the areas that are most hardest hit by the pandemic are blue regions, are blue states, are Democrats. So there was a clear decision that was very horrifically politically motivated very early on by um, the Trump administration that you can just see that pattern play out again and again and again. That's just one of the most heightened examples um, you know, and there's other ways in which these um, biopolitics of the MIC are playing out in very, very heightened ways. And um, we already mentioned the public health crisis of um, racialized police violence that has proceeded and also has continued to worsen and become more intense throughout the pandemic. Um, the biopolitics of the medical industrial complex is also defined by the bi-directional entanglement and amplification of, of power and control of the um, prison industrial complex. And the MIC uses carceral confinement and medical torture in its own institutions and across other quote-unquote carceral complexes. And when I say carceral complexes, I mean um, institutions such as jails or prisons or 
um, ICE detention centers that are really part of these systems of, quote unquote, criminal justice and confinement. Um, so this has been brought to our attention and intense and painful but crucial ways recently by Don Wooten, the, um, the whistleblower who is a nurse stationed in the Irwin Detention Center in Georgia. Um, so what Don informed the public about was two huge things. One was um, very high and unnecessary and coercive amounts of sterilizations on um, Spanish-speaking women or people with uteruses. Um, and the other was a complete mishandling and public health crisis around um, COVID in these institutions, um, in these ICE detention centers. And, you know, it's important to know that Irwin Detention Center is run by LaSalle Corrections, and they own and run 13 other ICE detention facilities across the South. Um, and I think Dawn Wooten's um, words to our communities when she became a whistleblower are so powerful, so I'm going to evoke them now for all of us. Um, she said, I became a whistleblower. Now I'm a target, but I'll be a target anytime rather than staying a part of an inhumane system. So again, another bright spot, a, a spot of resistance and potential is that, that there's so much conscientious objection happening within these institutions. Um, you know, another thing that's very painful is that um, Don Wooten estimates that at least 50 people who are interred in Irwin Detention Center um, have COVID and that at least 13 workers do. And in fact, the health services administrator of Irwin Detention Center who had hired Don, Marion Cole, died of COVID. So it's just, it's really, there's so much tragedy unfolding. You can see the way in which that medical industrial complex is so complicit in it. And, you know, you may know some of the um, back history of eugenics in this country. It is, um, it is not new. Um, I was able to um, talk a little bit about that history and how it relates to the founding of the MIC and um, regarding the Rockefellers and other monopolists that I named. But the first eugenics legislation um, to legalize forced sterilization of those unfit and disabled was in 1907 here in this country in Indiana, followed by California and 28 other states. And during the period of 1907 to the mid-40s, over 70,000 people, mostly black, brown, poor, and disabled people were forcibly sterilized. Um, and Hitler boasted that he looked to these laws um, and the eugenics program in the U.S. to, quote-unquote, inspire the Nazi program. Now, nominally, eugenics ended in the U.S. in the mid-40s in response to the horror of Nazism, but we can clearly see the way that it continues. And the MIC allows it to continue by degrees in other contexts, um, you know, in, in our institutions that are part of our, of our, of our lives and our world. Another example of this that precedes the pandemic is the legalization of transvaginal ultrasounds. 
Um, it's really more specifically the legal mandating of the use of transvaginal ultrasounds for people that have uteruses and vaginas that want to have an abortion. So this um, legislation is law in Kentucky and Virginia and several other states, and it basically mandates a person who wants to have an abortion that you have to have um, an invasive procedure in which um, a sonogram device is inserted into your body. It's painful, it's medically unnecessary, and then also as part of this legislation, um, the medical practitioner who's working with you is forced, mandated by law, to um, to narrate what they're seeing on the sonogram image. And if they don't do so, they can lose their license to practice medicine. So you can see this way in which um, a very patriarchal um, agenda is, in, is inserted, and I apologize for the poor choice of words there, into, um, into, into our medical practices and normalized, you know, not recognized as coercive, even though it's very clearly medically unnecessary. Um, and it's, you know, it's a way that the autonomy of doctors is even undermined or other healthcare practitioners that might be doing these procedures. Um, I think, you know, in, connected, in connection to that, in connection to um, reproductive justice and reproductive health, the impending installment of Amy Barrett um, as a new Supreme Court justice is another huge issue for us to be aware of. Um, you know, Amy Barrett is a member of a highly conservative Catholic organization, but what's most um, disconcerting about her is that, you know, she is coming with a very extremist right-wing agenda. So if, in fact, Barrett is installed um, to the Supreme Court, then she, and she has been voted in by November 10th, then she will be one of the Supreme Court justices presiding over California versus Texas, which is the case that could reveal, could repeal the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Now, if that were to happen, 30 million people will lose health care across the U.S., according to the Economic Policy Institute. And over 1.2 million people outside of the health, health sector could, could lose their jobs. So, you know, these patterns of withholding of health care especially healthcare related to reproductive health and justice, um, or foisting it upon people coercively, you know, forcing sterilization on people. These are methods used to deploy social control and really enforce white supremacy, patriarchy, and ableism. And, you know, forced sterilization has a long history of use as a genocidal tactic of war, including against indigenous women in this country. Um, and Jen Dierenwater, a two-spirit disabled journalist um, and researcher of Cherokee Nation descent, writes about this extensively. So that's a great resource for this. But what these dynamics really show us is the way in which also across histories and into present time, these tactics of, of war time violence have been transported into the medical industrial complex and across carceral systems and normalized as legitimate or necessary. Um, you know, so that's kind of helps us sum up and understand how we got here and exposes some of the medical industrial complex's hidden histories. Um, you know, by design, the medical industrial complex is white supremacist and eugenicist at its roots. It was created as an interlocking set of quote unquote vertical industries 
by monopoly families to ensure maximum profit and social control, not unlike the fossil fuel, chemical, or related industries. And in fact, you can see the way that they're entangled from some of the prior examples and histories that I laid out. I want to, um, I want to bring in some very, very helpful and powerful resources and guides in learning more about these topics and engaging in this work more deeply. So Harriet Washington is someone who I would really love for you to all be familiar with. Harriet is the author of the really loved and very important um, book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to Present. Um, and she also, she wrote a great many books. Many of them are award-winning. She also more recently worked, wrote A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and the Assault on the American Mind. Um, and she actually has another book that will be coming out soon, so keep a lookout for it. But one of the really powerful things that Harriet Washington did in Medical Apartheid is she was one of the first people to expose J. Marion Sims, who many of you may be familiar with as the quote-unquote founding father of the medical subdiscipline of gynecology. Uh, of gynecology. And um, what she revealed for our communities, for activists, for organizers, is the extent to which J. Marion Sims engaged in um, coercive uh, experimentation and medical torture of, um, of enslaved black women and also poor immigrant women in order to kind of create his techniques and technologies for that discipline. So that's just an illustration of not just the, the white supremacy and the patriarchy that's really embedded in the system, but the way in which it's intrinsically um, entangled with how knowledge has been accumulated and how it's been so abstract, how, how knowledge has so um, painfully been extracted from our communities. Um, and that's just a part of how the MIC um, has accumulated its knowledge. Another, um, another great um, academic that I want to bring to everyone's attention is um, Ruha Benjamin who um, has authored many books and is doing a lot of work in um, data justice right now and has done a lot of work in bringing an abolition mindset to health justice and healing justice. So her work is really powerful. One of the articles of hers that I really love is Catching Our Breath, Critical Race, Science and Technology Studies and the Carceral Imagination. And um, this you know, there's a lot of aspects to this piece, but it overviews the racist history of the spirometer, um, which is a device used to measure, um, which is a device used to measure people's lung capacity. If you have asthma or you know someone that does, you have seen a spirometer, I guarantee it. And the work also borrows heavily of the, of the research of Lundy Braun. Um, in the history of the, per, of the spirometer, it was actually built by a man named Cartwright because he wanted to study the differences in lung capacity in enslaved black people and white people to be able to quantify it precisely. Um, you know, and again, this illustrates the dynamics, these founding dynamics of the MIC. So according to Cartwright and his quote-unquote findings, um, the deficiency of black people was 20% in comparison to um, white people. 
So that this deficiency was actually a defining characteristic of black people. And this is an example, not just of the creation of racist medical technology, but also of the way that um, that um, race as in is encoded in a biological essentialist way that is completely um, outside of reality and real bodies. Um, but what this has resulted in essentially is that um, because of this calibration, even to this day, um, a person who is black would have to exhibit more lung capacity loss in, able, in order to be documented as having a diagnosis or being or needing or um, being deserving of care because there's, there's a metric that's set that black Americans have less lung capacity in comparison to other quote unquote races. So this is another reason why even um, you know, social justice oriented practitioners struggle within the medical industrial complex because there's these embedded layers of white supremacy and gender injustice and ableism. Another example of similar racist parameters exists for threshold of illness for kidney disease in black Americans, making it slower and harder for kidney disease to be diagnosed in black Americans and slower and harder for black Americans to receive dialysis or to, be, or to become eligible for transplants. This is actually an issue that many of the fine people that I work with with the Do No Harm Coalition have been working to expose and disrupt. Um, so I wanna thank them for their work. Another um, excellent resource for the um, breaking down the racism and eugenicist logics of different realms of medicine is the Institute for Justice and Healing, and you can find their executive summary on their website. Another excellent resource is Dr. Alondra Nelson's Body and Soul, the Black Panther Party, and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. And um, a couple more things. Um, I. I suggest to all of my students and people in my communities with whom I'm learning and organizing as required reading for our times, I highly, highly recommend Sins Invalids Disability Justice Primer Second Edition, which you can also find on their website. And then another excellent resource is the Changing Frequencies podcast, and they will also be releasing a medical industrial timeline soon. So again, really powerful resources. I think this is just the beginning, or for many of you, a continuation of the powerful work that you're already doing. You know, what is to be done? Um, what can we do in this moment? You know, and it's so important that we work to transform and unlearn um, internalized ableism and that we work to reimagine health and healing from the framework of collective liberation. You know, it's crucial that we honor and uplift ancestral and indigenous knowledge and practices, you know, in these times. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, health justice um, is, is most centrally about reclamation. You know, it's about reclaiming our bodily autonomy, our authority and power to define for ourselves and our communities what health truly means and understand that health is, you know, necessarily a collective um, endeavor, you know, and it's something that is contingent upon our environment and our social institutions. It is a process of healing and justice that requires justice in all realms of society. You know, this hyper-compartmentalization of health to an, 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 to an individual body 
is a white supremacist, kind of male supremacist, ableist myth. You know, so we need to be able to eject that and align with what's really true and recenter to our expertise about our own bodies um, and our very embodiments, our, our bodily needs and that of our loved ones, our communities, humanity as a whole and the planet. Um, you know, so what are four major demands or, um, you know, aspirations that we can set upon this new kind of imaginative horizon if we clear out um, all of the intersectional oppression that is spun and um, that we're indoctrinated into because of the MIC? What does that look like? So I would say, you know, again, understanding, exposing, challenging, transforming ableism, you know, especially medical ableism and racialized ableism is um, work that we all need to be doing now. And disability justice needs to be understood and centered in all of our, in all of our work at all levels. So if you're, a, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're uh, a climate justice organizer, the whatever walk or role of life, you know, for those people that are, are people that use wheelchairs that are listening, you know, um, whatever walk or path of life that you are in, you know, um, engage in this work of challenging and transforming ableism and centering disability justice. And the DJ Primer, the Disability Justice Primer that I mentioned a few moments ago is a great resource for that. And I hope I've provided some good information in this talk as well. Another demand is the democratization of science and all its translational applications across disciplines and technological innovations. So we need people science, you know, we no longer can tolerate science being elite or the purview of corporate power. Science needs to center the precautionary principle and it needs to center broad public oversight and participation. You know, all scientific um, institutions should become collectives. They should be worker-owned co-ops of some form. I and mean, that's another huge piece of this in order for us to successfully dismantle and recreate the MIC, um, you know, we're going to have to massively transform capitalism and how our economy functions. So transformative economics is a huge part of this. Um, we also need to abolish the chemical big agro industry in its current form. And we need to work towards a moratorium on new chemicals, especially pesticides, herbicides, solvents, and volatile organic chemicals. You know, that doubling from five to 10 trillion in the next 10 years that was predicted by the UN report that I referenced earlier, we really need to forestall that from happening. Um, and, um, you know, as I mentioned, we need to collectivize healthcare institutions, including big pharma um, and healthcare institutions in which um, people are providing care to community members. So I think that we should have networks of worker-owned co-ops by healthcare workers. So people that are curanderas and people that are cardiologists are working with horizontalism, equality, deep respect. You know, we're able to actually um, disrupt and transform the commodification of these ancestral healing systems. And we're able to um, let healthcare workers also be the administrators um, and also design these institutions. 
And we need to shift, obviously, from profit to disability justice and climate justice principles. And disability justice is always intersectional. So it, um, you know, challenges racism and sexism and all the other systems of oppression that comprise ableism and, and uphold it. And we really need to um, center and set into motion medical reparations for Black and Indigenous people and their families, first and foremost, then other people of color and other survivors of all classes and races of, of um, medical torture and abuse, um, of which I'm one myself, which is part of why I've been so called to do this work with all of us. Um, and I'll just finally say, you know, remember how powerful love is um, as, a as a revolutionary tool and practice. You know, we have to love ourselves and one another and love the vision and the dream that we're holding for one another. And there is healing and power in that, especially in these times. So with that, I will thank you all so deeply. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DeMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.